Today's, today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5, uh, 12 through 21. It's a, it's, it's a fairly lengthy passage. You can find it in your pew Bible on 1116. So page 1116, your pew Bible, if you want to read along, or you can just listen to me, either way, or look it up on your cell phone, or there's so many different ways to look up the Bible now. It's pretty awesome. So uh, Romans 5, uh, chapter 5, uh, 12 through 21. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the, uh, of what the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, then how, uh, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of, by, uh, of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed sin, one sin, and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one man's trespass was condemnation for all men, so, was, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace must reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, David. So what do you say to your neighbor? What do you say when your neighbor whom you've gotten to know over the years, maybe you and your neighbor have kids the same age, and so you, your kids like to play together. Uh, you, your kids will go over to their house and swim in their pool. Uh, their kids will come over to your house and play in the backyard with your kids, and so you've gotten to know them a little bit. You've done lots of barbecues. Maybe you've watched each other's kids. You've gotten to know your neighbors pretty well, and, and the truth is, as you've gotten to know them, you've you've started to notice that maybe there is a little bit of a strain in their marriage. Just the, the way in which they interact with each other, uh, maybe a lot of a heavy sarcasm, right? Uh, sarcasm can be fun, but when, when the whole relationship seems to be sarcastic, sometimes that can mask uh, some, some issues. So maybe you've just kind of wondered. Uh, and, and, and then one day, one day your neighbor comes over to you and he, he says, hey, can I talk with you? And you, you, you go back into the, the backyard, you sit on the back porch, and he says, my marriage is falling apart. And he just kind of breaks down. He, he just starts talking about how his wife has, has told him that, that she's leaving him, and she lists all of these reasons why, and he's come to realize they're all true. 
They're all valid. And he's in this place where he realizes he sees himself as failing. He's failed as a husband. He's failed as a father. What do you say? Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a letter that was written by a man named Paul in about the 50s in the first century, so about 20 or 30 years after the life, ministry of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to these Christian communities in the city of Rome that were beginning to grow, beginning to develop. And what we've seen as we've been going through this letter is there's this theme And that theme is that Paul is announcing, he is announcing, he is reminding them of the good news that is true, the good news that has come to this world because of the person of Jesus, what God has done through him. So the whole whole book is, is sort of unpacking this good news. But one of the things that we saw, we've seen from the beginning, is that the good news often includes bad news. And isn't that often true in life? Sometimes good news, there's bad news uh, that leads to the good news. The good news comes as a solution to the bad news. Uh, like when you say, hey, let's, let's go out to eat tonight because we don't have any food in the house, right? That's bad news. <laughs> good news, let's go out to eat, right? Hey, honey, I bought you a new car. Good news. Uh, because I totaled your car. That was the bad news, Right? So oftentimes, good news, there's bad news involved as well. And, and that's what we've seen. It's true here as well, that the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christianity, uh, has bad news. It comes in a response to, to bad news. And we've seen that throughout the letter, and it emerges here again. In fact, in some respects, some scholars even see this passage in a way of, as summing up a lot of what Paul has been saying in the first few chapters. And so again, we see this idea that there's bad news. And I think we can just sum it up this way. What, what, what is the bad news? And here's what it is. Everyone, everyone is broken. Everyone, everyone is broken. All right, we see this here in verse, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin... And in this way, death came to all men. Death came to all people. And we'll unpack more of that later. But he's saying that, that death, brokenness, has come to everyone. And again, he, he's sort of just reiterating what he, he expounded in, in, in chapter 1, in the very beginning. And, and chapter 1 kind of begins with him uh, sort of talking about the brokenness and the sinfulness of irreligious people. So he goes on and on and on just talking about the sinfulness and the brokenness of irreligious people. They are murderous. They are envious. There is deceit coming from their lips. They are gossipers, idolaters, all this kind of stuff. He goes on and on and on about the brokenness and the sinfulness of irreligious people. Um, but then you can realize it's kind of a setup. He's kind of warming up the crowd. He's getting him to be like, yeah, yeah, because he's, he's talking, you know, he realized there's some religious people that are going to be reading this letter, and, and isn't it true that sometimes religious people, um, we can sometimes, we almost revel in, in, in thinking about, about the, the sinfulness of others, like it almost, there's a weird sense it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're not like them. 
we're not like those broken, sinful people. I could say that, but, but there's just very much this sort of us versus them mentality. There's, there's us people that are on the right path, and there's all those people that are just going down the wrong path. And, and there's even something about, about, about thinking about that that makes us feel better about ourselves. And so Paul's kind of, he's kind of playing to that, I think. He's playing to that sort of religious uh, sense. He's like, yeah, those are irreligious people. They're, they're sinners. They're broken. They're immoral. They're envious. They're murderous, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 then, and then in chapter 2, he flips it. And then he says to the religious people, but you're the same way. And, and he'll go on later on. He'll say, I'm the same way. He says, yeah, yeah, okay, the irreligious people, they're, they're broken. Sin has affected them. But it's also affected the religious people too. And then he goes on and on. He says, you know, you know, when you, therefore, you who pass judgment on someone else, when you pass judgment on someone else, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Everyone is broken. Everyone, the religious people, the irreligious people, everyone, everyone is broken. Or another way of putting it in, in terms of the, the people that Paul would have been talking to, many of the people he would have been talking to, writing to, is that the, uh, the, the problem that Jesus came to deal with was not just a local problem. It wasn't just a local problem. Uh, so, and that, the reality is that people in Jesus' day, particularly the, the first century religious people living in Palestine, they sort of saw the issue as a local problem. The local problem for which they were hoping that God would come and deliver them was that God would come and deliver them in Israel from the Romans, right? So, so God's going to deliver us from our issue here. The Romans are our local problem, and we need God to come deal with that. Uh, a lot like David dealt with the Philistines and Moses delivered them from the Egyptians, right? The sort of local problem. And, and what Paul is going to unpack and say, no, well, no, actually what Jesus came to do, to deal with, uh, was, was, is not a local problem. It's a universal problem that he came to deal with. He came to deal with the brokenness that is in everyone. Everyone is broken. Everyone is broken whether they recognize it or not. That's the point that emerges in verses 13 and 14. He says, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Okay, what's, what's he saying here? Basically, what he's trying to say here is that there's, a, there's sort of the technical definition of sin, and that's when you break a command of God, a command that God has given you. Sort of that's technically you're breaking that command. And what he's saying is that Adam directly broke a command of God. God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, I'll do it anyway. So he directly broke the command. And then Moses gave, when Moses received the law, God, God gave them all of these laws to follow. And then if they broke those laws, it was technically a sin because they had transgressed against direct command of God. And so that's technical sin. But what Paul wants to say is, look, there's still sin even if they don't, they don't know it, even if there hasn't been that direct command. And we all know this, right? It's, if you have kids, you know what this is like, right? So sometimes a child will disobey a direct command. 
But then sometimes a, a child will do something that you never thought they would ever do, so you never, you never actually made the command, but it was still wrong, right? So, for example, when I was a kid, you know, I know I'm sure at some point my mom said, Kevin, do not hit your brother, and I hit my brother. That was a sin, a, you know, a transgression of a direct command. Um, but one time I took a firecracker and I put it in the screen window, the, the screen of one of our windows, and blew a huge hole in it. Right? And when my mom came and saw that I did that, I couldn't like say, Well, you never told me I couldn't do that. Right? I mean, it's just like, Well, yeah, okay, it wasn't technically a sin. You didn't break a direct command, but it was still sin. You know that. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying that everybody from the time of Adam to Moses, even though they didn't have the law, they still sin, even if it's not technically sin. So in other words, what he's saying is they were sinning even if they didn't know it, even if they didn't know it in that very kind of technical sense. He's saying everybody's broken, everybody's sinful, whether they recognize it or not. Now, the question is, why is everyone broken? And, of course, that's a a very big, deep question which people for centuries have written volumes about. But I'm going to keep it very simple and keep it in terms of of how Paul explains it here. Understanding, of course, it's it's a bigger issue with many more questions. Why is everyone broken? And the answer that he gives, he doesn't, he doesn't actually give a, like a philosophical answer. He tells it in light of a story. He says everyone's broken because of Adam. Everyone is broken because of Adam. And we see this, I mean, it just emerges over and over again. He says it a number of different ways. In verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... And death came through sin. Then again in verse 14, uh, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Moses. Or excuse me, verse 15 is a better place. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, right? So there is again, verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through on and on again. So he's reiterating this idea that this brokenness, this death came through Adam. You know, I think it's interesting because what he's getting at is he's saying that we are broken because of our beginnings. We're broken because of what took place in our beginning. And I think that's interesting because I, I, I remember one time I was filling out a, I was filling out a form for a counselor to go see a counselor. And I hadn't talk, told them about what I wanted to talk about. But they sent me these, this preliminary work, these preliminary, uh, you know, forms that they wanted me to fill out, that they have everybody fill out. And the first form, here's, here's what it had on the form. It asked me to go back to the beginning, to go back to the beginning of my life. And, and so it asked questions like, you know, I want you to think about uh, a positive, a few positive experiences that you remember from the ages of zero to 11. And write down, what were positive experiences that you had that shaped you from the ages of 0 to 11? And then, then also write down, what are some negative experiences that you remember that shaped you from the ages of 0 to 11? And then there was another section that said, okay, write down the, the positive experiences that shaped you between the ages of 12 and 18. And, and then also, what are some of the negative experiences that shaped you from the ages of 12 to 18? This idea that, you know... I don't know, we don't know what your problem is, but it probably goes back to the beginning. That at least to some degree, 
the issues or brokenness that you may be dealing with go back to the beginning. And I think what Paul is showing us is that as it is for humans, so it is for humanity. As it is for humans, so it is for humanity. To understand the brokenness of humanity in the big picture, we've got to see that just like with a human, you've got to go back to their beginning. If you understand the brokenness of humanity, you've got to go back to the beginnings of humanity. You've, you've got to go back. You've got to go back. You've got to go back in history. And, of course, what's interesting is that the Paul throughout the letter seems to be suggesting if you want to understand the answer to this question, you've got to go farther back in history. So, for example, when he's dealing with the issue of justification, he deals with this issue of justification, and justification is the question of who is right with God? Who are the people who constitute the family of God who are in right relationship with God. And if you are a part of that covenantal family, then you are justified. You are in right relationship with God. And so this question was a question that, that was d- debated a lot in the first century uh, amongst the Jewish communities. Who is justified before God? And, and of course, the answer that everybody was giving, well, okay, the people that are justified, they'd say, well, you got to go back to Moses. The people who are justified are those who obey the law. They follow the law of Moses And if they follow the law of Moses, then that marks them out as the people who are right with God. And what's interesting, that's what most of the debates were about, right, in in the first century. And Paul comes along and he takes that whole conversation. He says, no, 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 no. You got to go back. You got to go back farther. You've got to go back in history. You you don't just go to Moses if you want to understand who's right with God, who's justified before God. You've got to go back hundreds of years to Abraham. And then with Abraham, we see that it's through faith, through faith that you're right with God. So we see this throughout Paul's teachings that you want to get to the, you want to get to the bottom of things. You've got to go back farther in history. And ultimately, that's what he's saying. If you, want to, if you want to understand what Jesus came to do, if you want to understand the problem that Jesus came to deal with, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. You've got to go back to Abraham, or excuse me, back to Adam. And I just want to say, I think it's interesting, I think, thinking about this idea of, of Adam having such an impact on humanity, and I don't think this should surprise us that much, because if you, if you just think in recent history about individuals who have had a tremendous impact on history, right, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, you think about something like, you know, if Ben Franklin had not, you know, got struck, that, the kite struck by lightning. I don't know if that's really what happened or not. That's what I learned in in science class in, like, sixth grade. So maybe that's not true. But, but like, if you hadn't discovered electricity, where would we be? The impact that one man had. What if, what, if, what if Adolf Hitler, as a soldier during World War I, had been killed and had never risen to power, right? Imagine the impact, in that case, for, for evil. Imagine the impact that one man had on world history. It's remarkable. What if George Washington had decided to side with the, with the British, Right? How different might we all be? That one man, the impact that he had on all of us. What if Martin Luther had decided to remain a Catholic monk? I wouldn't have married my wife. I mean, the impact that an individual can have on all of history. We, We see this in recent history. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying that this man, that Adam... Adam affected all of history through his rebellion. He turned away from the opportunity for life 
And in turning away, it affected all of humanity. Now, one of the things we just need to say is that when you start getting into very specific historical questions, who was Adam? When did Adam live? Uh, how exactly, where, where exactly was Adam? Uh, in what ways did Adam actually affect? You know, how did his sin, how did it actually work that it affected all of humanity? There are all kinds of different answers. People debate those kinds of questions all the time. You have very different, uh, widely different views. And, and part of the reason why there's uh, debates about it is because the, the reality is that the Bible is somewhat ambiguous about it. When you look at the story of Adam in the Bible, it's, there's all kinds of metaphorical imagery. There's all kinds of symbolism. Uh, and so, for, for example, I mean, just, just the name Adam, uh, the name Adam literally just means the man. That's what it means, right? Like, so if, if, you're like, if you're like, man, you're totally Adam. That's like, you're the man, right? That's what, Adam just means the man. And the word the man actually comes from the word the ground, so it's, it's like the man from the ground. I mean, it's, it's this kind of rich, uh, symbol, uh, symbolic, uh, even name that is given to Adam. And so the reason why I say that is that I, I would just suggest to you that a lot of the so-called conflict between science and the Bible on this issue may be less, uh, less prominent than many people think. There's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of different perspectives on this. And I would simply suggest, certainly for those who are considering the faith, that this need not be necessarily an issue that hinders them from really coming to understand the heart of the gospel. And Paul, of course, Paul's not really concerned about these questions at all, really. I mean, the reason he brings up Adam is really just very simple. He's trying to get at this simple fact, okay, that everyone is broken. Everyone is broken. That's the reason that he brings it up. He wants us to see that everyone is broken. All of Adamah. All of Adam, all of humanity is broken. What is the bad news? The bad news is that everyone is broken. I want you to think of it this way. This might be just kind of a crude analogy, but think of it this way. You go to the grocery store. You get a carton of eggs, a dozen eggs. You bring the carton of eggs home. Imagine if you opened up that carton of eggs, and not just one, not just two, but all of the eggs were broken. If humanity were a carton of eggs, that's what it would look like. Do we have any uh, fans uh, of the Metropolitan Museum of Art? I'm a, I'm a big fan. Uh, I like to go there. When I was a kid, we went there even when we didn't live here. I lived in Wyoming. We made several trips out. I have great memories. That was a memory from my 0 to 11 age that had a positive impact on me, right? And uh, we, we went to the Met, and we, we loved spending time there. And I was doing a little research, and I, I can't believe this is true. There's something like the entire collection of the Met in, in all their different galleries, they have like two million pieces, something insane like that, right? And, and I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that you go to the Met and you walk into that museum and every single painting is damaged. Every single sculpture is broken, right? You go into the impressionistic wing and you want to look at Monet and Dagon and, and you, you go in there and every single painting is either it's burned a little bit, or, uh, or maybe somebody has vandalized it, has written on it, something along those lines. You go, you look at every sculpture, and every sculpture is broken in some fashion or another. You see, what Paul is saying is that if humanity were the Metropolitan Museum of Art, every single piece would be broken. Everyone 
is broken. You have never met a person who is not broken. Ding dong. You go to the door. The pizza delivery guy delivers a pizza. He tells you the price. You don't know him from Adam. That's funny, guys, right? Because we're talking about Adam. Nobody laughed, right? You don't know the pizza delivery guy from Adam. You don't know anything about him except one thing. He's broken. You go to a party. Ever been to a party where you don't know anybody? You don't know anything about it. You don't know anything about any of them? No, you do. You know that every single one of them is broken. Friends, the person sitting to your left, the person sitting to your right, the person in front of you, the person behind you is broken. Everyone. Everyone is broken. And you should know this. You should know that everyone is broken. Because you are too. You are too. Again, Paul goes out in the early chapters of this letter and he talks about the brokenness of everyone. And then he's going to get a little more reflective as we move on later in the book. You are too. Everyone is broken. And realizing that, even resting in that, is the door by which you enter into the Christian faith. That's the door. It's recognizing and being honest about your brokenness. It's not making excuses for it. It's not just saying, well, that's, well, that's how God made me. God made me that way. No, you're broken. And it's in that humility that we can really begin to enter the faith. You see, it doesn't matter how much you know the Bible. It doesn't matter how much you've served in church. It doesn't matter how religious you are. If we don't get that, if we aren't constantly drawn back to that fact that we are broken, we are missing the whole point. That it's through that humility. That's why, that's why when, I, when, I look for, when I look for leaders... That's the number one thing I'm looking for, is individuals who understand their brokenness. They understand, they have this, this sense that, you know, I'm really not, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be, I'm not worthy, I'm certainly not worthy to serve. I'm certainly not worthy to, to, to lead people. They have that sense that, who am I? I'm, I'm a broken person. You see, that's the door. That's the door that, that allows us to enter into the Christian faith. In fact, I would say that, that that's spiritual maturity. Listen, spiritual maturity, a huge component of spiritual maturity is a growing awareness of the holiness of God and a growing awareness of your own sinfulness. You see, the point of conversion, the point when a person can really begin to understand what the Christian faith is all about, if this is a timeline and they're going along here and, and there comes this point of conversion, two lines begin to, to, go, to diverge. And what happens is, for the first time, they begin to recognize the holiness of God. And they begin to realize, oh my gosh, I'm not close to that. And the interesting thing is that, is that the, the longer they go and, they, and they, they pursue God and they study, what they realize is that, is that they have an awareness of just how deep that gap is. And the more mature they get, they realize the deeper and deeper and deeper that gap. They realize you know, how, you know, how simple they are. Like, like at first, this guy realizes, you know, oh my goodness, 
Um, I'm, I'm watching pornography. That's, that's sin. And then as he gets more mature, he's like, you know what? Even just the way I think about women, even that is, is, is not with God. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and you understand more and more the depths of your sinfulness, and you understand more and more the, the glory of God and his perfect holiness. And, and then you know what that does? It makes you need the cross more. Spiritual maturity flows out of a person who realizes their need for the cross, and that just grows and grows and grows. And and actually what will happen when that happens is you actually will mature. Your actual maturity will will increase. Your awareness of how immature you are will grow. You actually will grow, but, but what will be growing at the same time is your awareness of this and your need for God's grace, your need for the cross Humility. Humility is the greatest sign of spiritual maturity. It's understanding that everyone, everyone is broken. So that's the first part. That's the bad news. Everyone is broken. But then Paul wants us to see, yes, but everyone can be healed. Everyone can be healed. And that, that's what he's, he's getting at. And he explains it in a number of different ways with this analogy. In other words, what he's saying is, is that transgression came through Adam. Grace comes through Christ. Condemnation comes through Adam. Justification, being right with God, comes through Christ. Death comes through Adam. Life comes through Christ. And then it even hints at something that will emerge later on in the letter, and that is that through Adam we are slaves to our sin, but in Christ we reign with him. Everyone is broken, but, but in Christ everyone can be healed. In Adam everyone is broken. In Christ everyone can be healed. And, and I think that when we begin to understand this, that everyone is broken, but everyone can be healed, I, I think this is going to change our way of thinking in a number of different ways. First of all, you will begin to have a greater compassion for people. You'll have a greater compassion. When you realize that everyone is broken, you'll begin to have a a greater compassion because what you'll realize is that you shouldn't be surprised when people are mean to you. You shouldn't be surprised by that. They're broken. What you should be surprised by is when they're nice. We shouldn't be surprised. Have a sort of a compassion for people because, because why? You know, why are they acting? Why are they being mean to you? Why are they acting out? Because they're broken. Why, why is your boss critical of you? And why, why does your boss seem to almost celebrate uh, making people look bad? Ever had a boss like that? They just seem to almost enjoy making people look bad. Why is that? Because they're broken. They need, they need to, to tear others down to build themselves up. And whatever it is that you're doing, when you deal with somebody and they, they hurt you, it's because they're broken. Look, and we know this, right? Because I know that when I hurt other people, it's because I'm broken. So this enables us to have compassion on those when they wrong us. It also allows us to have compassion towards ourselves. When you realize that everyone is broken, you realize that in Christ everyone can be healed. 
When you realize that in Adam, everyone is transgressed, but in Christ, there is grace. You'll begin to have compassion on yourself. How many of you here today, here's the reality, you beat yourself up. You beat yourself up with your failures. Because you know them. I mean, you know, your, you know yourself. You know your thoughts. You know how you, how you spend your time. You know yourself. And, and you beat yourself up over what you do. And, and you, you just have this constant sense that you're never enough, that you're a failure. Listen to me. When you understand the gospel, when you understand that everyone is broken, of course. Yes, yes, you mess up. Yes, you're failing. You, you are in Adam. You, you are broken. But in Christ, you are forgiven. When we get the gospel, when we get that everyone is broken in Adam, but in Christ, everyone is healed, we'll stop beating ourselves up. We'll show compassion to ourselves, show compassion to others, but not just compassion, we give one another hope. We show them hope. What do you do when that neighbor comes to your house? That neighbor that you've been building a relationship with for maybe many years, never really had very many spiritual conversations with them. It's been largely fairly superficial, but you've gotten to know them. Your kids have played with their kids. Your kids have been to their house. Their kids have been to your house. You've had barbecues. You've, you've had a lot, a lot of fun together. And, and, and then just one day, he comes over and he says, my marriage is falling apart. My wife has told me why she's leaving, and she's right. I've blown it. Do you know what you can tell them? You can tell them that everyone is broken, but everyone can be healed. But if they will put their faith in Jesus, if they will surrender themselves to him, they can receive the grace of God. And it can begin to work in them. It can begin to change them. It might even be able to save their marriage. Friends, this is what our church is about. This, this is what our church is about. We can get so caught up and confused in all kinds of different things, all kinds of good things, but we can't lose sight. This is what we're about. This is what we're about. We are a church that proclaims and lives out the reality that everybody is broken and everybody is healed. Why, why do we come to church? Why do, do, do we come to church to, to get some sort of spiritual experience that makes us feel good about ourselves? Is it... And just, just some sort of a high or something like that. No, why, why do we come to church? Do we, do we come to church because we think that in coming to church, you know, now, look, I'm a good person because I go to church and I'm not like those people who don't go to church. No, those, that's not why you come. We come to church to remind ourselves and to feed our souls with this truth that everyone is broken, but everybody can be healed. You pray with me? Dear God, we praise you for your grace. We praise you that you are a God who loves us so much. That you came and you died for us. That you took upon yourself the weight of our sin, the weight of our brokenness. God, that we are made right with you. 
God, we praise you that there is hope. There is hope that you can bring change in our lives, both now and in eternity. God, we know that our ultimate goal, our ultimate destiny through faith in you is to be healed and to become the people whom you've designed us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.